Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Good evening, everybody, um, and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival event, um, where I am going to be um, talking to the very brilliant Anne Enright, um, author of the book Actress. Um, here she is indeed. Hello, Anne. Hello. How are you? I'm great. I'm grand. Thank you. I'm here in my living room. Lovely. Feeling the kind of odd thrill of it all. <laughs> it's a thrill and it's very strange these days. These are strange days and it's a pleasure to meet you, even though it's on a screen in a, in a very two-dimensional flat way, but I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, um, this brilliant book, Actress, which um, we're going to talk about today, but Anne's also the author of one of my absolute all-time favourite books, The Green Road, um, which was given to me as a gift by an actress, in fact, who said that I would love it. Um, and Anne's also garnered many awards, which we're not going to go into, but uh, not least of which was the Booker Prize for The Gathering. But she's also a great essayist and thinker. Um, there are so many amazing questions uh, and things to talk about with this book, um, but I wondered whether a good place to start, Anne, if you're up for this, would be if you would read us some of your lovely books. Yes, I would. Yeah, that is a nice place to start. Um, <clears throat> I'm, a bit, I'm a bit shy in front of Vicky Featherstone reading. <laughs> I won't be the first person who felt a bit shy reading before Vicky, but here we go. Um, uh, people ask me, what was she like? And I try to figure out if they mean as a normal person, what was she like in her slippers eating toast and marmalade? Or what was she like as a mother? Or what was she like as an actress? We did not use the word star. Mostly though, they mean, what was she like before, they, before she went crazy? As though their own mother might turn overnight like a bottle of milk left out of the fridge, or they might themselves be secretly askew. Something happens as they talk to me. I'm used to it now. It works in them slowly, a growing wonder, as though recognizing an old flame after many years. You have her eyes, they say. People loved her. Strangers, I mean, I saw them looking at her and nodding, though they failed to, under to hear a single word she said. And yes, I have her eyes, at least I have the same colour eyes as my mother. A hazel that in her case people like to call green. Indeed, whole paragraphs were penned about bog and field when journalists looked into my mother's eyes. And we have the same way of blinking, slow and fond, as though thinking of very, something very beautiful. I know this because she taught me how to do it. Think about cherry blossom, she said, drifting on the wind. And sometimes I do. Such were the gifts I got from Catherine O'Dell, star of stage and screen. How are you, oh mother of mine? Never better, she used to say. And the blossoms drifted by the tree load when she looked at me. There was a man in the kitchen in Dartmouth Square where everything important in my life seems to have happened who knew someone who had slept with, some, with Marilyn, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe, and never washed, he said. Some evening in my childhood, I came down the stairs to hear this news. He was such a nice old man. It's stained me ever since. So when people ask, what was she like? I have an urge to say, pretty clean, actually. And then to add, I mean, by the standards of the day. So that's a little, 
<laughs> Amuse bouche. That's glorious, and it's well, it's the from the beginning of the novel, and it's um really kind of gets to the heart, kicks off straight away the kind of relationship, the brilliant relationship between Catherine and her daughter Nora. Um, one of the things that I found so extraordinary and exciting about the book is that you start off teasing us that it's one thing, um, and it feels like it's going to be that the, the, the memory. Yeah, not not every reader can cope with frustration, but actually frustration is one of my my key tricks in in this book and in others. When people, you know, rock up saying, oh, we're going to find out all about Catherine O'Dell and Nora, her daughter, says, I'm a writer. I'm going to tell you all about my mother. Uh, I'm going to write the memoir that she deserves and, and that's going to show her properly. And at the end, you say, well, did that happen? And perhaps not. Is a kind of sleight of hand and the mysterious kind of fact of Catherine the star, Catherine the mother, Catherine uh, the actress uh, is as fugitive and elusive as it was at the very beginning. The, the, the book is provoked by a young student who comes to the door and says, I want to write a memoir about her mother, your mother, and what was her sexual style? quite keen to talk about her own sexual style. And, and Nora, who's the daughter, is quite, uh, uh, you know, quite private and a bit alarmed. I mean, of course, people are seen through a different lens and a different angle as the years pass by. But anyway, she doesn't want anyone talking about her mother's sexual style. And she says, what was she like? And she says, she was mine. Yeah. Um, and that sense of possession never leaves her. And that sense of possession is often the problem in books loss and possession but she manages Nora manages to both lose and hold her mother up in the same sentence as it were. Well it's so interesting that because you know they talk about it starts off with the 21st birthday party um, and, the, and the papers come and they take photos of the 21st birthday party don't they and of yeah. course it's, it's depicted in a certain way and Nora talks about the fact that the story they're trying to tell is of the overshadowing mother and she said but we weren't like that. Yeah, and you wonder whether, you know, people say we, are, we weren't like that. And usually when people say that, they're, they're, they're in a state of something like denial. So perhaps there is a protracted denial throughout the book that she isn't overshadowed or her mother wasn't too big or too glamorous or too astonishing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the papers come along and she says, yes, but I know that when my mother sang that song, she, she comes in carrying the cake, singing Que Sera Sera, and, she, and the crowd all love it, of course, gathered there. But she says, I know she also sang for me alone. And I've been taken, actually, as I discussed the book uh, after I had written it, with, with how, gorgeous it, how gorgeous it is to formalize or ritualize love. And if there is love at the center of it all, how that how that holds true and how it holds good and how it kind of makes it even more gorgeous. And that's a kind of that's part of the meaning of glamour for me when something both is and is larger than itself at the same time. So you get the projection and you get the truth at the center of it at the same time. It's a bit like Valentine's Day. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, nice. Well, you know, if you love someone and then you give them a flower, then, you know, then that's twice as nice. Yeah, of course, of course, you know, in adolescence or many, uh, you know, of course, all these things are open to uh, accusations of the fake and the fraudulent. But actors are always fake and they're always lovely at the same time. 
They are all of those things. I mean, there's so much duality in the book. That's one of the things that's so glorious about it. Um, you know, that I try desperately to keep hold of something. And, you know, you tease me with the fact that she may look, she may write this book about her mother. Is she going to do that? And then she does. And she sort of finds herself as a writer through that, um, which I find very exciting. And there's a beautiful bit, if I, just which I love at the end, when she writes the list of the books that she's written. And she says, um, I hear them each as a fading note. Together they make a kind of chord. And this note, which is so fugitive and beautiful, is in my head, or it is nearly in my head as I wrote them down. And, um, it, you know, there's a lot about writing in the book. We're going to talk about the theatre bit in a minute, but there's a lot about writing in the book. You know, yeah, Kath- that's slightly harmed that moment too, you know, so fugitive. And <laughs> I got to, you know, I had a bit of a laugh. Totally, it's glorious. And, um, and, and you know, so Catherine's a terrible writer. Um, it, she, you know, it, 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 she's yeah. not Nora, I feel, I'm, I'm kind of sentimental about her, becomes a good writer. I'm just interested in the journey of, of a writer to become a writer and when they feel confident about saying that and what was your journey in terms of that, Anne? Because I'm in awe of somebody who is a writer. Oh, well, it's just a question of typing. But I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really interested in what you say about, yeah, that Catherine was a really bad writer. Um, and it seems to me, you know, that, that at the end of it, Nora's gone through her old manuscripts and she can't even look at them. They're so bad. <laughs> and she can't tell which is an early... And, Maybe in, in, in Nora's case, she's got the mortification out with her mother. <laughs> all, the, all that dread and, 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 and glorious sort of shame, all that mortification that happens when you write something. You know, anything that's externalized is, is open to uh, disgust, among other, I mean, lots of different emotions, okay? So, and terror and fear and all the rest of it. So, yeah, I mean, all of that, that, that roller coaster in the book is 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 separated. That the mother has all the difficulty, and Nora has all the pleasure of writing. But Nora also has a, a life that's a, that's a sort of answer to celebrity. She's all about the craft. She's all about the work. Um, and Catherine, she's a star, but she's also about the craft and the work. And it is the craft and the process and the work and all of the doing that that keeps her sane as long as she is you know that keeps her safe from fame as from you know fame destroys you and all the rest of us yeah anyway what, what happened to me what happened to me I don't know I am um, I am not happy when I don't write so it's just like going for a walk I mean you kind of think oh I should do it but it's kind of hard and the, uh, there's raining and you know you just get typing wow so- yeah, for 30 years you're very good at typing, if I may say so. Congratulations on it. <laughs> um, I, I, so, why, so why theatre? I mean, you know, I feel as a theatre director, I'm always very grateful when anybody wants to write about theatre, but I was very nervous to read the book when I first started because I thought I was going to feel my own shame about theatre uh, and about the kind of uncovering of what theatre or the, the truth of what theatre could be like. But there's a, there's a it, you know, you, you straddle, you ha- obviously understand and know about theatre because your sort of knowledge of the journey that Catherine goes through is amazing. So why did you, why, why was theatre the thing or acting? Well, that's amazing that you say that because theatre is the most high stakes thing that you can do, I think, because when it, when it, when it's bad, right, <laughs> when it's bad, it's, ama- it's amazing. Uh, and then most of it is really quite good. And then when it's glorious, um, that's a whole other thing, you know. Mm. Um, I, I, uh, I rattled about student theatre and then a little bit with, um, what do you call them? 
summer companies, stock mm. companies and things like that. A great company that uh, turned into Rough Magic Theatre Company is still working today. They were all my mates at college. And so I was going to act. Really? And I, yeah, I was, yeah. Amazing. Well, I mean, not that I don't act now, but I was going to do it, you know, uh, professionally um, for about two minutes. But I, I, even then, I kind of thought, well, I mean, I, even then I was running the numbers and say, in those days, one in nine parts was for a woman yeah. um, and 95% unemployment in the profession. You just go, well, OK, this is uh, I was looking at a lifetime of fail better. I mean, Beckett has nothing on any actor. <laughs> you know, go out, all that auditioning, all that failure. All I hadn't got that. I didn't have it, you know, um, and I'm lucky and I didn't really necessarily like doing other people's scripts. So I did one by Carol Churchill. I do that all day and all night. This was just fantastic. Yeah. Uh, top girls. But yeah, I didn't, I, I like the idea of writing your own stuff, actually. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing, though, because I think the sort of journey of, you know, the kind of theatre history journey that you take us on in terms of Catherine's journey is fabulous from that sort of actor, manager, traveling players through to the, you know, the kind of success of Broadway, West End, and then the much more political theatre of the 70s and her experiences in Manchester and Edinburgh Festival. And then, you know, the, the very sort of alternative scene that you take her to with, with the... I'm really glad you're not, you're not saying, hang on a minute, 1973, Manchester, how could you do... I mean, she does do a, a big journey. And, I, I, and I, I was thinking, well, this is quite an interesting actress. There is a kind of bit of heightened reality involved in all of that um she i had to decide early on whether she was the kind of actor that sometimes i love who is somebody who is highly trained who can sink into the part and who becomes the part or is she a siobhan mckenna type who mm -hmm. is she's the old school she's old school she comes from melodrama mm -hmm. everything is heightened everything is slightly mannered the way she phrases the slight sibilance and as she gets older you know her voice uh, becomes a national sort of lullaby she becomes more and more iconically irish and in order to do that she she isn't going to be a method sort of <laughs> i mean she takes acting classes in new york but she wasn't going to be method she was going to be big and she was going to be up she was her gaze is always up yeah. um that picture of joan of arc uh, siobhan mckenna's joan of arc um siobhan mckenna and paul Goira, her last role um tom murphy's play with the druid uh th that that was major for me the, the, the whole redheadedness of all of that there was <laughs> like, it was very 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 important so but I, I, when I was half involved or semi-involved in theatre, I did see things. I mean, I remember when Waking the Feminists started in Ireland in 2016, when the women uh, who had been excluded from the Abbey Theatre's uh, programme for that year stood up and said, well, why is the commemorative year of the 1916 Rising? Why are there no women writers? And in the wake of that, a lot of women spoke about theatre. One of them was Polish. I was on a stage and she said, you have no idea what happens to women in Polish theatre. They are dragged around the stage by their hair on a regular basis. And this is seen as a, as, as a complex uh, um, annoyance of the government of the day. So what we do is we abuse women and they stand in for humankind. But you remember that also from the plays of the, you know, what we used to call the Howard, the the Barker Brenton Bonds, um, that 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 the that that abusing 
actors on stage in a pretend way was seen as a political critique. Yeah. Um, so that was that, that was great. So I thought, yeah, I'll do a bit of that, actually. Yeah. I had Joan O'Hara in my head, Sebastian Barry's wonderful mother. Yeah. She's an actress, the Abbey actress. And she briefly worked with a Polish uh, director called Mbacek. And I had, but at one stage, all these very strange things were going on stage. And she emptied a bag of sugar on her head. Go, Joan. She was, <laughs> it was so amazing. Um, and... The thing, so the things that, that, that women are obliged to do in fictions and the fictions of others, usually men, are a key, an absolute key thing to the cycle of roles that, that Catherine has. Yeah. So she's, she's in one second-hand fiction after another. She's the girl in a nightie. She's the, she's the running nun. She, you know, and I had a lot of fun with all of those different characters and different roles. But, but the slow accretion of one or other secondhand fiction. It's why she 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 desperately wants to be a writer and write her own stuff yeah. and get a decent role going. Um, and I just loved shifting each iteration of that kind of madness was great. The way women are obliged to act, and we do it in our daily lives as well, women and men both, but particularly women, we act out some, some or other secondhand fiction, some or other cliche. Entirely. I mean, I thought that was one of the things that I, I really loved about these, which I had to look up because, you know, you're, you're so convincing. I didn't know whether or not they were actually real plays or not that they were in, that she was in. But of I course, had too much fun. Yeah, you had. It was so <laughs> yeah, it's so skillfully done as, as you move through it. And of course, you know, she's desperately trying to find to, to be the centre of her own narrative and of course as a star she's not and it's just so interesting for me about how the how the novel starts unpacking that in terms of the roles that she plays and Nora's trying to put Catherine at the centre of their story and understand her more and research her but then Nora brilliantly with her cool mind and quietness becomes the absolute centre of it so you play such a brilliant magical trick on us from making us really realise and understand the lack of roles for women, the lack of centering of women in their own story. And then the whole novel becomes about that until she, you know, is generous. Yeah, it's, not, it, it's not really stated as that. I'm delighted that you see it and that readers actually see it, but it's not stated as a kind of ideological theme of the thing mm. of, of, you know, being in the wrong story. You could call it the wrong story, the wrong story by Anne Enright. That's my next book <laughs> right there. But, um, yeah. Anyway, at the middle, at the, by the middle of the book, I mean, Nora basically eats her mother. <laughs> she takes over. I was very interested in memoirists who say that by the end of the, of the book, they loathe and hate their subject. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in this, partly because of the Oedipal crooks that, takes, that happens in the middle of the book, where Nora's own autonomy becomes, you know, Central. So, I mean, that's the story of mothers and daughters. At one, uh, it 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 turns, it turns. So that moment of turning, um, for for Nora, for, yeah, for Nora, is when she goes off and starts having boyfriends and having a great time, and she goes, "Oh, this is a bizarreze. Okay, yeah. this is what it's. This is now me." Yeah. Um, and her mother's bereft. Yes. Overtaken, abandoned. Yeah. Uh, thrown away. Uh, but yeah, that, all of that. 
very sad. But that brings us to the to the brilliant one of the brilliant themes of sexuality, uh, which runs through it so strongly. Female desire, um, you know, it, it it really surprised me that Nora was so set. Well, not so set, but the fact of how she lost her virginity about the joyfulness she feels. Oh, she was delighted about it all. Yeah, no, I've read so many, so many accounts of sex that make it seem like it's the worst thing that anyone could do to another human being um, or with another human being. And um, so I said, well, I mean, you know, something's wrong. <laughs> something's wrong. <laughs> Why are we all here if that's the case? But no, I did want to reset it. And I've always wanted to write about female sexuality in, in particular from, from highly subjectivizing it as much as possible. Be really interested in agency, both, you know, not just sexual agency, but agency in general, female agency. Doing things. I mean, we're so much the objects of stuff. So doing things, being things, wanting things, and including wanting sex, which is very is the taboo. That is the taboo. Completely. Um, that that somehow, if women want sex, some disaster. What is the disaster? I don't know what the disaster is. Social disaster. That is the political disaster. What? Whatever. Anyway. So. I mean, I exaggerate for the purposes of argument, but that, that is a, a, a very uh, serious taboo because, of course, it's perhaps because it's so empowering. Wanting and having is like, that is your cake and eating it too. That is, that's, anyway, this is what Nora discovers. Oh, that's what it was all about. Yeah. So that's the way she starts off. She goes, oh, this is what people haven't been told. This is why it's such a big business. Why, you know, everyone's all so keen on it. So she, it's a great realization for her. And I needed to do that partly in order to restore or to ensure her agency as a female character, but also because there is different, there are different kinds of sex in the book. Sex is not just one thing. Mm -hmm. So in order to show and she doesn't quite, it's really hard for her to understand in the 1970s what bad sex might be, what the kind of un, as yet unarticulated issues of consent might be, what, my, what a bad date might be. And, and she thinks at one stage, maybe, maybe this is how it's supposed to be. And she, I, so I needed her to have a really good, clear idea of what... Uh, what the metaphysical poets got from love. You know, my face in thine eye, thine in mine appear, or whatever that is, that mutuality and equality of desire that you get in John Donne. That's where I came from in my sad little life. Oh my goodness, me! do you know something? If I, I, could, I should hold this up to prove this to you because one of the things I found really sort of moving about it is also the sort of journey that she goes on with her part with the husband. Oh yeah, and, and the kind of and the sort of and the very sort of fierce sexual togetherness of what that is and what that means and the words that you used like pivot and crux oh, yeah. <laughs> around you inside me and I was like I did um I did John Donne for my A level English literature and I was like it's the twin compasses oh yeah and that, so I, I it was it's so metaphysical I really felt that the kind oh, of good. Yeah, that's great because some people might think it was a bit underwritten. I didn't want to, you know, the, the, the Nora is married for 25 years or something. Um, and that to me is a bit of a closed box. I mean, I haven't read that written yeah. about. So that's really interesting. What's the taboo there? Um, and so, but I, I did underplay the sex in that relationship. I kind of thought, well, okay, then, you know, give them a bit of, <laughs> give 
know, a bit of privacy, whatever it is. So yeah, it was it was quite stylized or quite metaphysical. That's a great compliment, actually. No, I really felt it. I mean, I felt it deep inside oh. me. Oh. Really strong, powerful thing. It felt really it's- exciting. Kind of erotic, but not detailed. It was brilliant. Really, really brilliant. And abstract. Yeah, abstract, which is um, on the other hand, of course, there's the sort of the, the men and their attitudes in the in the book to sex yeah. and sexuality, which is so uh, complex. Yeah, I mean, you get characters that are re- highly recognisable, um, and then, but actually, there's a range of men in the book, and they have a range of uh, uh, wants and issues and problems and uh, attitudes to all of that. Um, but. Yeah, now there are, I, 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 there are two bad men in the book, and one of the bad men, who isn't that bad really at all, gets shot by Nora in the by Catherine in the foot. Yeah, um, and the other uh, bad man um, is is particularly unpleasant to um, to Nora in, yeah. in her youth. So. Um, well, your question was what they want or whatever. I mean, actually, the, 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 one of the things that I was Duncan, thinking, well, it's the, yeah. the way we go through the structure of the book, which is that I've, I felt for a long time that that we were looking at the kind of violence towards women or the grooming of women, all of those, co- the coercion and the lack of consent and all those things as a sign of the times. And we were accepting it, which is what has happened in the past. And then of course, when we get to the to get to the end, which we mustn't give away, must be to the, to the audience in terms of what Nora finds out about her father and about her, her kind of paternity, you sort of realize that actually we, we should never have accepted any of that as a sign of the times. And I thought that that sort of the notion of of, of the brushing it under the carpet, which is what's happened up to now, and then the real violence of what happens if you allow that upon somebody's life to take place, I thought was really brilliantly handled. Um, I, I, uh, I, I was wondering about um, Duggan and Boyd, though, the two men that you were talking about, about what they want from Nora. I'm really interested in that, about what they want from Nora. Yeah, or what they want from Catherine O'Dell. Or Catherine, exactly. Yeah. Because at one stage, um, she says what they want is her talent or what they want to spoil is her talent, that that's what they envy. So it's kind of a narcissistic universe, for better or for worse. And envy is a great narcissist's emotion. So these men are quite full of themselves one way or the other. They think of themselves as important men, thinking men. And what they envy is the pure fluency of of Catherine O'Dell's talent, her ardency, her ability to flame and give and to be somehow sacrificed for the audience's uh, greater spiritual advancement or whatever you know so I ran out of that sentence there I was just thinking what do you think happens on stage what do you think happens on stage Becky? but anyway um is sacrifice what we want yeah yeah I I am I, um, the thing about the happen on stage thing I really love the stuff about you know the audience will always stay there it's a safe place to be which I'm like it's not <laughs> It feels like quite terrifying. It can feel quite terrifying for people. I, I'm so amazed that people, or I was always so amazed, um, and quite madly, if I, at one stage, when my friends were up on stage and I was in the audience and I didn't know why, but I had a brief moment of saying, well, why am I, well, there, there they all are. I could stand up and walk on stage. Yeah. The thing that no one ever, ever, ever does. I mean, yeah. well, unless they're very uh, unwell. Um, it's really not usual. 
No. I mean, it is weird, isn't it? I mean, that, that really fascinates me, the thing about theatre. I mean, you talk about this a lot. There's a lot of liminal spaces in your in your in your book things that are literally described like you know Catherine walking out of fear of walking out of the darkness into the light and the falling mm. and then the forgetting but there's also ones which aren't aren't literally described that are lots of different spaces between the real and the unreal and and I'm fascinated always in theatre and you talk about it the gap when you open your mouth and a word comes out this idea that something happens on stage there is a literal gap and then there is an audience and in the gap, we, are have, we have some form of understanding. It's like a metaphor from one thing to another. And we understand, I don't know how that works. And I'm, I'm really interested in how things become three-dimensional in novels, because that's a three-dimensional relationship. Um, and how, how do you do that? Because it is three-dimensional. It doesn't exist as a series of pictures in my mind. It is real. How does that work in fiction? Uh, mind the gap. It mind the gap. Oh, uh, I mean, she does describe Catherine walking out on stage and I didn't write it in the book, but I, I do think it's a moment of being born, you know? Wow, yeah. I do think it's a dream of being born um, one way or the other of coming. I mean, there is a, a couple of birth scenes in the book, but um, and that's what it is when we step out on, on, on stage. Um, the thing about a book is that it happens between two people the writer and the reader, and it happens on the page. So instead of the emptiness of the pros art, we have the flat surface of the page. But um, so there's an object in the middle, um, a mediating object. That that's actually I've just said something very abstract. That's possibly pants because um, it's it's so intimate. Yeah. I don't know how words make I don't people all think differently. So I don't know how consciousness is informed by language. But I know when it's working. <laughs> I know when it's do when it's when it's happening for me and how we are in a book and in a sentence. There's some something in this book I suppose of the voice and that is one of my uh my tricks is mm -hmm. that you're listening to someone and um, what I'm interested in is the distance uh, from the e reader's ear to the the, the uh, narrator's uh, speaking speech. You are so you're listening to something. Are you listening like you're on the phone, which could be very strange and uncanny? Are you listening as you know to someone at the bus stop? What what is what what you know what style? Are they in your head? Are you talking to them in your head actually, and not listening to them at all? It's you know, so it's it's that it's the closeness of the voice that interests me, the buzz of intimacy of of the of the voice against your brain, basically. So exciting, isn't it? That notion, because of course, what what happens with with this story is that Nora feels I feel so it feels so she feels so personal to me. She so reveals herself to herself and she's so unexpected as she finds some kind of happiness and she has her gorgeous kids and, you know, we learn about them when she looks for the ring and everything. But I never thought I was going to find that Nora. Right. Nora. So as I meet her, she becomes so personal and close to me. Whereas at the same time, you are doing the Siobhan McKenna thing with Catherine where she's kind of declamatory and, um, and red-headed and lit. Yes. Yeah, the but I mean, there's a, a, a huge amount of backstage because the important thing for for Nora is going backstage with Catherine yeah. and seeing all that madness, which I love still, you know, that, you know, the dark space of backstage. But another liminal space is sleep. 
there's a chapter. I, I like when the book does something that I, I, I didn't plan or I don't really know how to fit in, but it's kind of right. And one of them is where, where we meet Nora's husband. He's asleep and she thinks, she wakes up, she thinks he's dead. And she thinks, oh, great, she's dead. <laughs> and then goes, oh, my God, what have I, that was a dream and, and how terrible I am. And he's, but there he is. He's, it's actually quite a trope now in modernist fiction by women, the sleeping man. Um, um, and what what that is um, that y- you know, so we don't really get a naturalistic evocation of the marriage. Um, and when she finally, when the emotion of the book builds up enough that she can tell us what the important, you know, that what this important history for her, um, it's all it's all done by anyway. It's all done by modification and yeah. change. So there's never a moment where you can grasp this person is that now that 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 person is essentially him. There he is. Yeah, shifts all the time. He doesn't have a name, does he? No. No. Cool. I was just thinking whether I'd missed that in a really foolish way, but no, he doesn't have a name. No, he's no. a modernist character. But what's of course so fascinating when you talk about voice and the different voices is that the the only kind of agency he has apart from being being at the other half of a great sex life and the father of the children all those things is the act of giving the tape and the oh, yeah. and the cassette recorder to rehear her mother's voice and I, which yeah. she obviously doesn't put in the cassette recorder she has to go she has to save it and leave it so that's kind of extraordinary as well that it kind it of is nice moment amazing yeah. In terms of the voice, you've talked about this before as well, but I was really fascinated in Catherine's journey to Irishness, which, you know, and the way you talk about her accent going from, you know. Just a bottle of tie. It's not a journey. (laughs) It's just a trip to the salon. Yeah. Think about her accent as well, where it goes from fake to symbolic to ordinary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, she turned into a kind of quite uh, uh, someone who speaks a little bit like I would to say County Dublin accent. Yeah. To Irishness and what you feel about that, the kind of national desire of us all to be Irish. Speaking of liminal spaces, I do love the the place that 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 exists before things are named. Mm -hmm. So um, one of those spaces was Ireland before it became Ireland, for example. Mm -hmm. So the 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 journeys of English um, Scottish, British actors over and back to Dublin, around the countryside in Ireland, and the Irish actors on the London stage was very kind of usual. That's what they did. It was the circuit. It was kind of, you know, so these mongrel players who travel around and who really don't have a place. Um, she grew up among them with the fit-ups in the 1940s and 50s. She's as Irish as anyone who ever played football, but she was, she was born... Uh, on the Irish team, but she was born born in England. So I love this pre-identity stuff. Mm-hmm. And when the identity starts kicking in and Irishness becomes more of a brand, you might say, she goes, oh, yeah, that's a good brand. <laughs> not, not as cynically as that, but she thinks, oh, yes, no, I'm poetic. I'm lyrical. I'm passionate. I have heart. I must be Irish. Or, yeah, I'm an artist, you know. So it is a kind of a, a, a grand lie um, that she finds useful. And, of course, she goes through various iterations of Irishness that become increasingly crass. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the great successes of the Irish Tourist Board in the 60s and 70s was selling Ireland back to itself. <laughs> 
Um, and yeah, so instead of thinking, oh God, uh, the West of Ireland is so poor and I have to run out of it in case there's another famine, we thought the West of Ireland is so low. Well, no, I mean, that's that's far too complicated. I'm, a, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I love the West of Ireland. and uh, But, you know, what, what had been a complex and po- poverty-based difficult history became more and more postcard friendly. Yeah. And I sort of wonder within that whether there is a, a, an inevitability that Catherine, in, in that search to be the most Irish, ends up having a support for uh, and a kind of relationship with somebody who you allude to being in the IRA. I find the politics of that really interesting. Yes. Uh, and that's, you know, there are real figures, uh, you know, kind of secret histories in, involved in, in that, that aspect of the research. Um, and yeah, no, she, 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 Catherine becomes involved with someone who may or may not be, become a, a leading figure in the IRA. And I was really, uh, I had to balance it with great uh, care because you look at the civil rights movement, movement of the 1960s and Bloody Sunday, the burning of the British Embassy, these really huge moments in my own personal history and how long it took for us to reckon, to reckon, you know, to, to be able to even write about these things. Yeah. One of the first times I was ever in the theatre was in the Royal Court in 1980. Carol Churchill's play um, uh, Cloud Nine. Yeah. And in the middle of it walked the ghost of uh, a character's sister. And he had been shot. He was a soldier, a squaddy who had been killed in Northern Ireland. And I have never felt a taboo more uh, shocking and amazing. I literally was out of my seat at the idea that this was manifest on the stage, this incredibly difficult historical kind of moment. Anyway, so I approached it with great caution. I was really interested in uh, the difference between fantasy and reality. I'm really interested in the difference between the story and, and, and how we go about our daily life. And I'm really interested in the difference between thinking about shagging somebody or killing them and actually shagging them or killing them. And it is the only difference there is really is I mean it's absolute so Catherine is involved with a bad man or someone who becomes a bad man um and Nora says but we're all attracted to them aren't we really we're all interested in the shadow and actually so many of our stories and fictions are about the shadow Mm. it's a huge a huge difference to see it walking around in your life I think Wow, yeah, and it's um, the the thing I think as well that is so interesting with how you place Nora in that is when she says something about um, in this instance it was just too real for me. You talk about real and not real a lot, but actually I think that that's the thing for me which walks the tightrope so elegantly of Catherine's sort of obsession or interest in the violence and the brutality of that. Man. Well, actually, both of those things happen in the body. And, and so, so Nora is the witness to a bombing in Dublin, uh, which has not been resolved, who, who did it in the 1970s. And the, the difference is that these fantasies, when they are acted out, play out, play out in the destruction of the bodies of strangers. Mm-hmm. So whether the fantasy is sexual or murderous, it plays out in the flesh, in the flesh of others. And I think that's the most radical and amazing thing. So, yeah, I mean, I'd love 
to, to, to write only about empathy or only about how we think about each other. But these are really radical physical acts and they are, you know, totally to do with our integrity as, and existence as, as, as human animals. You know. Yeah. Yeah. The violence on the, of, on the body, of the body, of who perpetuates that and what those yeah. are is a massive conversation of now. You know, yeah, but you look at, you know, Netflix on any, you know, Tuesday night and, and that's all there is, is the vibe. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There's one or other kind of potential dismemberment. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> it's our greatest fear and our most violent act forward, mm. isn't it? All of those things. Um, I, was, I just wanted to ask you about, um, before we get, go for some questions, but I've got some questions coming in here, um, uh, about about structure and how you draft and how you develop ideas because obviously I work in not obviously to everyone else obviously to myself I work in new writing and I work with playwrights all the time and there's a you know major process that goes on about the drafting and the restructuring I'm just interested in how that works for you as a as an author well I don't have you to work with <laughs> so, so more arduously more arduously no I mean the structure of the book is is pretty much uh, I was thinking about it earlier the, 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 the structure is or all my structures are pretty standard right there's a midpoint there's a climactic point there's a triggering action there are all the things that the guys who are the people who write uh, playwriting or uh, screenwriting books advocate it's a Shakespearean structure or a three-act structure. It is a kind of natural kind of wave shape that we all know somehow, very organic. And then I mess around with it, you know. So I, I just structure it as an emotional journey. Yeah. Um, and then I see what else might fit at that moment. And the things that fit work by juxtaposition as well as development. Mm -hmm. So... There's a kind of modernist impulse of putting things beside each other. That's kind of anti-time. And then there's a really temporal kind of naturalistic push forward. And those two tensions. I mean, I wish, I, God knows I wish I was just one or the other thing. But I love working between tensions, you know, because yeah. it gives, or between contradictions, because it gives the energy that I want to, to sit down, you know, that's why I sit down. I mean, I'm doing this out, you know. I would hate it if it was only one thing or the other, because this, that's exactly where, as we were saying, the gap, that's where the yeah. tension was between the things, which is so exciting. But do you have, do you, when you have an idea, I mean, I'm sure it's different every time. So this is a really sort of crass question. So I apologize. But no. when you have an idea, do you sort of feel and know the whole idea or does it reveal itself as you start writing? I don't really have an idea. <laughs> I have a problem, maybe. Yeah. I have, a, yeah, a problem. What was she like? That's what was she problem. like? Is that the problem of this book? Yeah, and, and actually the problem is usually stated on the first, the first gesture, the first writing gesture. So I will look at it to see what the problem is. So, you, you know, I, I tell my students, um, I teach in UCD and I tell my students all the time that, that it's, it's already, they've already written it somehow. It's already in the first thing that they've written. So you have to look at it very carefully to see what contradictions are already at play that then you're going to expand out over this series of 80,000 words. Easy, 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 easy. easy. That's easy, easy. extraordinary, though, about the visceral relationship as the reader because you go on a kind of wave-like journey as you discover those things, and that's the thing that it goes deep yeah. into. Yeah, the readers are all different. You know, I mean, as, as I mentioned right at the top of this, some readers can't, can't stand frustration mm -hmm. um some readers 
the, the wantiness of the reader yeah. and the wantiness of, of me at a book, you know, the, the, it, it is, is kind of interesting. And they get quite stroppy then if they're given the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so what I'm trying to do or what works for me is, is if the language holds something yeah. aesthetically, I mean, as it were, intention, in stasis and whatever. If, if the language holds, then you'll, you'll keep them. Yes. Um, but, it ha but it has to be, that's all about tone and emotion and all the rest of it. And, and no, I'm not going to give them what they want. No. Don't buy this book. You will not get what you want. But you could also buy the book. <laughs> There's a button, isn't there, to click um, yeah. to buy the book, which is would be a wonderful thing for Anne and for her publisher, but also for the book festival, buying it from here because it supports uh, the book festival being able to go forward in these uncertain times. Um, um, we should move on to some questions from other people. Now, we've talked about the other readers, not just me, selfishly. Um, so here's one from Claire. And she said, you've said before that you like exploring topics that are barely spoken or taboo. Can you tell us what topic in society deserves an Anne Enright airing? Well, I mean, there's, there, there are lots. And, and I, I do think that fiction is necessary because it is safe mm -hmm. or seems safe. Uh, it's better than fighting in the street. Um, and what topics do I feel? Um, that's a really interesting question. And as and as the taboos break and shift, uh, what what are the new ones? Well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm yeah, uh, uh, I'm writing, I'm writing, uh, I'm writing away now at the minute. But I, I I don't know if I've necessarily found that nerve yet but you know I'm, I'm working I'm actually quite a quite an old-fashioned story the thing I always find interesting about taboos when writers break them is that you didn't know they needed breaking that's what writers are shaman to do that for us they go oh god that was really what we needed yeah but I mean early on I used to go around thinking that everybody knew what was really obvious but it's the obvious thing that can't be said so it's always it's always it, it, so you wait for something to become so obvious that saying it uh, is inevitable. I yeah. suppose if you're lucky, if you catch that, yeah. Here's another one from Kirsty. She says, um, "How does being Irish affect your worldview and your writing in the process?" Um, I, I'm on a bit of a journey now because. Um, I was Irishness for me was so exclusionary of female creativity or so iconized it in such a way that I found damaging or, you know, it was it was such a uh, that I, I wasn't I wasn't very keen on it for a long time. I think nationalisms tend male um, and I was very cautious of nationalism um, because of its right wing tendencies, I suppose, even though Ireland hasn't gone to the right wing now in covid times you can think well how we organize ourselves in borders and tribes is is really quite you know uh, quite ancient maybe uh or are or, or useful again anyway how does it inform my worldview i'm beginning to think that irish people are quite nice i think so and that that's not a bad thing to be no it's not necessarily you know uh you know i don't know uh, imperialistic or something 
<laughs> it doesn't, I don't know. What does it get you? But it's better than not being nice, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Ireland is one of those countries, we talked about this with Catherine, but Ireland's one of those countries that so many people wish that they were from. And yeah. It's really fascinating that about how. People- yeah, no, I mean, they're welcome to, you know, a lot of growing up without contraception, uh, divorce, or, uh, or abortion uh, facilities, um, being taught by Catholic on Catholic grounds by Catholic priests and nuns, you know, come on in, the water's just fine. Yeah. Um, I mean, it is, I think, quite a crucible of, of, uh, 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 and it doesn't get fun until it's kind of terrible one way or the other. Really? Well, I'm not worried about, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is these are huge questions, and it's really interesting that we talk about uh, talk about it a lot in the newspapers and and all our platforms now. What what one nationality or another means? And for a long time, I was like, "What the hell?" I wish I could not be Irish, but now I'm fine. I mean, yeah. I can't be anything else. Why is it the one identity that you can't shift? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. We were just talking about this briefly before, weren't we? That they're about the sort of borders and fluidity and where they've come from and what that means in terms of your own identity or countries. And, you know, obviously in England, we're going through a major crisis in terms of... Yes. But I think you need a sense of circumference as a writer. And that's what your tradition, but you also make your tradition. So every individual writer in, you know, London or Aberdeen or wherever they are will will form their own tradition and say, this is the yada yada um, and and claim the authority to make the tradition into which they can write. Mm -hmm. So it's self-made as well as publicly communally formed, I think. Um, Here's one from Elizabeth who says, was Catherine's character inspired by someone in particular? Her characterizations were uh, inspired by Certainly Siobhan McKenna. And if I look at the very early bits in the, of, of, of writing the book, there was one evening I was reading Maeve Brennan, who is an Irish writer who worked in The New Yorker and became psychotic in her later life um, and, beca- and was quite a glamorous Irish person. And she went to interview Siobhan McKenna in 1955. And there was a New Yorker on the town piece between the two. And I thought, well, that's so interesting, this talented potentially psychotic, uh, mad Irish woman and a kind of glorious, mad portraying Irish woman. And madness in general was in the air. So those two women went into it very much. But there is loads more. I mean, it, I, I know I'm cooking when, it, when it's like everyone, you know. Yeah. And those extraordinary, you know, Catherine's such an extraordinary character, isn't she, in terms of in, in every single way? You know, you, I don't think it could just be based on a single person. She has so. Oh no, 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 and 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 that's kind of that kind of, that sits down on you if you just if you you can't you can't, you can't steal like that. No, 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 um, because it because it kills the fiction. Yeah. Um. This is an interesting question. What did you hope yourself to achieve through this book, and did you achieve it for yourself? I just I'm just looking for peace of mind. <laughs> Just looking for peace of mind. Um, what did I want to achieve? Yeah, I mean, uh, every book has a has a has a has you know has about three different um, things you wanted to do. Um, I wanted to write a book that my the friends of my team, my 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 college years would recognise and take as a gift. I think. 
I wanted to write a book that people who love theatre would love. Not to sound too sentimental, but I that I, I wanted to represent that somehow and hand it back, shape it and hand it back. I, I mean, the glamour and the tawdriness of the theatre are just have always caught me. I, I've always wanted to do it, and it just seemed too tawdry, too glamorous um, to be to do. And I was so I wanted to catch that. The, the, I, I wanted to catch that emotion somehow. I think you've done that hugely and I felt so strongly as well. This thing about the people who work in theatre, it, it's such a sort of um, life experience for them. They never want it to end. And I really, you know, that kind of, you know, you write about it beautifully, but the kind of carrying on, people turning up at the house, you know, late into the night and songs and everything carrying on. There's just something, isn't there, about keeping, trying to keep hold. Yeah, this moment in some way and the community of it and that's obviously something which is now we don't have but yeah yeah I mean I think people who aren't in the theatre or aren't around actors look at look at stars and think of them as solo uh, human beings but actually theatre practitioners know that it's it's a mad communal thing that people are together for for six weeks or three months and they love each other absolutely and then they don't see each other until they're cast again in the in in but the intensity of that in the rehearsal room and improvisation room and all the other, that that it's like being drunk all the time it's like being in love all the time and it's uh and it's very it's very lovely it's quite I don't know do you agree with me or not Vicky I mean you do it for you know I mean I agree with you entirely it it is it's an it's an extraordinary thing and actually not having done it now since March and like all the conversations that I have are about the strategy and about how we survive, but actually it's all the worst bits of being an artistic director at the moment. None of the best bits, which are the community and the amazing people at all levels doing all the different jobs, you know. And, and but also it, not just that it's communal, but it's physical, it's visceral, it's it's a very, you know, I was going to say, it's very altogether uh, kind of thing. It's very not holistic or Gesamtkunstwerk or whatever. And anyway, it's something that's all together um, and not compartmentalized at all. It's really a, uh, an amazing world. I didn't even scratch the surface of it, really. But you've got our, you, you, well, I mean, who can really? Because it's like enormous. But, um, but you know, I, you, what you, what you really made me feel was her, her joy, fear. Uh, a kind of experience of the performance and the performance is, is the thing you know we were talking about that it's so weird isn't it in a way because we're not here with the audience yeah but, and, and the fact that you're not making up the words but that the words are somehow stored and they come out anyway that you are a vessel you are so that's kind of amazing too do you know that um they did this amazing experiment with Fiona Shaw where she they put things on her head uh, a neurologist and then she had to recite not I the brilliant Beckett monologue. And what they found was that she was using a part of her brain that nobody uses so that actors store that. The maybe memory. that's only Fiona Shaw. I mean, maybe that's <laughs> only Fiona Shaw. Maybe it's like, you know, the rest of us, we don't know. We don't know. But it's amazing that they it use it. It is amazing. Is it like for singing, you know, maybe the bit for singing? Yeah. It's really fascinating. Well, you do it. I, I did the Hellfire Sermon from from uh, from Porto to the Artist a hundred times for lunchtime theatre, and on the Monday I couldn't remember any of it. I know. I mean, where is it? It's in there. I'll be ninety, I hope, clutching the nurse's hand, and I'll be going now. I'll tell you about hell. It'll all come out. Do you away. remember what you write, though? Do you remember what you write, or do you have to look back at it, or is it in you? 
I, uh, that's a really, I, I've never been able to just recite. I have to have the visual. And so, I mean, I look back at what I did 20 years ago and I say, oh, wow, what? I used to be able to write. Why, why can't I write anymore? And that happens all, all the time. <laughs> Thank God. Um, well, you know, because there's so much refining that goes on. Um, but your, your former work is always intriguing. Intriguing. Who wrote that? I can imagine. Do you hold on to the language, though? When you, when you, you know, when, because the language is really wrought. Do you hold, do you hold on to the language? I said, because the language is so beautifully shaped and wrought in your writing. Um, and I just wonder whether you. I'm more discarded than hold on. Yeah, no, I'm never going to use the word fugitive again. It <laughs> cropped up twice, first in speech, and then in that little piece you read, I'm never going to use that again. So I'm, I'm always divesting. Divesting. Did I help? <laughs> By bad reading, you see. <laughs> well, no, no, I said fugitive first, and it's already a bit law, isn't it? Uh, fugitive. Fugitive. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, anyway. So, yeah, no, I, cadences, it's all about the cadence for me. And then I get a bit bored with the cadence and I want to shake it up. So, um, I don't know. It's great. It's a great lot. It's great pleasure in, in the day when, when you're working. Yeah. Well, we're, we're reaching an end and I should congratulate you hugely on this beautiful book and your other writing as well. But also it's been an absolute pleasure. What a high point well, for me. Thanks so much, Vicky. Oh, well, congratulations. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Now we wait for eight seconds. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.